Hi folks, I'm Alan Watts and this is Cutting Through the Matrix on the 8th of February 2012. For newcomers, I get over quickly at the beginning of every every broadcast. Look into the uh, CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com website and help yourself to the free downloads of audios, which are there. There's over a thousand there now and you can take your pick and go through them at your leisure and hopefully you'll understand the system you live in the system that's very deceptive because the public are always lied to. And really, that's, there's nothing new in this. Uh, it's always been like that, it's even even with the beginnings of parliaments in Britain and elsewhere. That that's their job, really, is to, to distract you into certain areas while they go ahead with uh, other areas. It's like, it's like Francis Bacon, when he gave advice to the king, he said, he says, the public never notice... Um, the pennies, when you put a penny tax on everything, it's better, it's better around ask for a pound more per year or per week from every citizen. Just put pennies on this and pennies on that and the pennies on that, and they'll never notice. And it's so true, you know, it's deception really. But it also, also tells you how they, they've always understood human nature very, very well indeed. And nothing is different from today. Today is just more organized. Uh, the, the media all belong to the same organization, the Council on Foreign Relations. And, uh, and so they make sure they standardize your news for you. Even most media uh, gets its information from, from the, the AP and from Reuters. And Reuters is a, rock, a Rothschild uh, creation. And they own it still, I think, today. So they make sure that all, all media ends up with the, with the two main lines, uh, which are owned by the same people, to make sure the world gets the same standardized version of news. And that becomes your thoughts for the day, and then they give you another bunch tomorrow. So you'll never get, you'll never get truth, really, by uh, going along with the establishment. The establishment is so high above us. They're all part of what they call um, uh, uh, international management or governance if you notice that in articles to do with big corporations, they're always talking about uh, the corporate governance. That's what they're talking about. They all work together. And they are, like Bertrand Russell said, they're technically a, they're a separate species now because they're in on what's really happening in the world. And they decide to give us a different version at the bottom to get us all on board with wars and things like that. So it's not difficult. And it's inevitable, really. And I think that's just the way power goes. And... Um, so help yourself to the, to the audios and so on. Number two, you can get transcripts as well from those sites and transcripts in other languages of the talks I've given at alanwattsentinel.eu. And you can buy the books and discs, hopefully, at cuttingthroughthemedics.com and help me just take over here. And um, from the U.S. to Canada, a personal check is good to order. Uh, you can also use an international postal money order from the post office. Or you can use PayPal. Some people just send uh, cash across the world. Western Union, MoneyGram, and PayPal once again. And what I do here really is just categorizing chronicle events as we go through them to try and show you the other sides of the story. We're lied to mainly by omission. We get partial truths. 
And you can make anybody the guilty party, anybody the innocent party, simply by omitting partly a good path of the truth or so. And that's how it's always really been, because everyone's got a spin on things since they all belong to the same organizations. And if you really want to know what's going on, go into the Council on Foreign Relations' own website. They've got thousands of experts across the planet, because they have their, their, their headquarters across every the whole planet now. And... Um, they tell you what's going to happen because their boys all work and advise every government on the, in the world. They advise them what to do. Big, big, massive, massive think tanks working on every part of society, including the coming food crisis. We've been doing that one for 16 years. <laughs> so really what we get in the mainstream is almost a cast-down, watered version, a fifth-grade explanation of why things are happening, and they say that's good enough for us. Back with more after this break. Hi folks, I'm back and we're cutting through the matrix talking about really the way we get our thoughts given to us. We do have massive organizations, agencies, think tanks giving us our thoughts all the time. What to be concerned about one day, the next day or for a week or maybe a few months if it's a coming war or whatever. And we, we, we have, even with war especially, they really get you going to get you on board with it. You must always get the public support for anything that you want to go and plunder. And so it works the same way through thousands of years, from the ancient times to the present. The same, if you introduce the same method uh, over again, it's been worked before with humans, it will always work again. That's what even Plato said. So there's nothing really new under the sun, as they say. It's just that they've got better and more full-time employees and think tanks working on how to manipulate our minds. And... We know, too, that Sunstein, the big guy up at, uh, next to Obama there, uh, really is supposedly an expert. I don't really think he is, but he, he, th- he imagines himself to be an expert on, on really neuroscience, although he's really a lawyer. But he dishes out a lot of stuff to do with nudging, and he works with the guys on the Internet, the FBI, CIA, and all the rest of them, NSA, to go into all the thousands of studies which they're doing already on forums. They've always been doing it. And they write about it, what your people's habits are. But even, he's even mentioned how to disrupt them and put false ones out there. There's lots of false ones out there. And that's why you can never believe anything you really see on the nets and forums, etc., because you, you don't know who owns it, really. Is it a, a CIA operative or whatever? Or a newcomer comes into your group, and before you know it, you're all fighting each other, which is a way of, of disabling you. He talks about all that stuff in his own writings. Anyway, the, the nudge idea... Is, is working every day on your, on your computer. You'll see people who read this story also read that. Well, so what? <laughs> That's my answer to that. So what? <laughs> I'm not going to read it because, because they supposedly read it. But you're getting nudged, you see. Whether it was true or not, you're getting, you're getting nudged to go along a certain way of thinking on diff- a certain topic to make sure you get the proper, um, uh, opinion at the end. And you'll think it's your own. Happens every day. People don't even know what's happening to them. But this has an article about nudge theory trials, and, and every country is using them. This is their working, say, officials. That's, that's, that's some like experts, you know, only with badges. So it says here, trials suggest millions of pounds could be saved by using nudge theory about how people behave to encourage them to pay taxes and fines, officials say. 
trials organized by special government units suggest so-called nudge theory could play a key role in reducing fraud, error and debt. They should try it on the government. Anyway, it says, using simpler language and letters, highlighting key messages and stressing social norms have boosted compliance. Because people are herd animals. Most of them will just follow the rest, you see. So many people have used this product, and, and, you know, and so you go and use it too. In one case, a local authority saved £240,000 on false and council tax claims. I think that's a bit of a nudge. Uh, misdemeanor there. I think they're, got it, they're kind of amplifying that out of proportion. Nudge theory is seen as a way of producing positive economic and social outcomes without resorting to bans or increased regulation. In other words, nudge theory is, is forcing people uh, through subconscious means to comply with what you want to do with them. <laughs> I mean, that's really it, isn't it? The Cabinet Office established a behaviour insights team after the 2010 general election and the unit has published details of some of the work it has been doing in the past 18 months. And, and the links here too. I'll put these links up at the end of the broadcast tonight. And it says, in the past 18 months, minor changes. It says, eight trials carried out in partnership with government departments and agencies have shown that relatively minor changes to processes, forms and language can have a significant positive impact on behaviour. They're talking about forms and demands and things like that. Well, you really need to be a bureaucrat to understand them. They can't say anything simply because they're all mixed up. It's amazing going into the whole bureaucratese language they speak. And Sydney Webb of the Fabian Society, one of the founders, was a guy who came up with bureaucratese language that no one understands. You know. So simplifying that would certainly help in trying to figure out what they're actually saying. Or wanting. It's always wanting, actually. Different messages that have been trialed. Emphasizing in letters to people that those who do not pay their taxes are in a minority in their local area. That's to make them feel bad. Telling professionals that unpaid taxes in the past would be treated as an oversight, but from now on uh, would be seen as an act of choice. Warning tax cheats that a third party information could be used to expose them. Interesting, too, that uh, I, I had a, an article, I think I put it up, where one of Her Majesty's tax collectors, uh, who actually, they actually work with big corporations, but they, 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 they're, they're paid by the taxpayer, and they work for HM, the Queen, you see. And he was working with uh, uh, Goldman Sachs, I think it was, and uh, he would even tell the guys he worked for and who paid him, HM, the Queen, uh, uh, all about their business. He just can't tell you that. It's confidential. So he's really taking uh, kickbacks, obviously, from Goldman Sachs, even though he worked for the British government. They should nudge him a bit, too, eh? Anyway, it's his warning. T- and, and by the way, he saved them millions and millions of dollars. Yeah. Warning tax cheats that third-party information could be used to expose them. Contacting people in person by text to urge them to pay outstanding fines. Using images of untaxed cars on insurance demands, asking people to state that they are still eligible for council tax discounts. In one six-week exercise, 140,000 people were sent a variety of letters by Revenue and Customs. One was a standard communication stressing the need to pay outstanding taxes, while others contained statements such as nine out of ten people in Britain pay their tax on time. Don't you feel rotten, eh? <laughs> Shame, eh? Or, or stress that other people living in the same area had already complied. Letters emphasizing such social norms, as in quotation marks, produced a 15% higher response rate than the standard letter. Revenue and customs believe this could help it collect £160 million extra tax revenues a year if borne out across the country. They're probably working out their new 
uh, pay raises in, in Parliament and in the bureaucracies right now with a lot of extra cash to come. A new approach to collecting council tax could bring significant savings to town halls, the Cabinet Office report suggests. In a, a trial conducted in November, Manchester City Council saved 240000 by using a different tone in letters to people claiming a single-person discount on their council tax bill. In other words, they weren't being heavy-handed. They'd been, dear, dear, dear citizen, you know, we're so happy that you're going to comply. You know, while it previously just required people to fill out a form saying their circumstances had not changed, it is now asking them to state directly that they're still eligible. This method, which also downplayed references to the size of the discount and warned that knowingly providing false information was an act of fraud, resulted in a 6% fall in people claiming the rebate. A lot of folk actually are terrified of putting anything down because it's, it's thought of as being fraud, you know, because they don't understand how the change of approach was based on the theory that people are less likely to lie if they're forced to actively provide false information rather than simply not updating their details. So, different incentives. In another trial, doctors and dentists with outstanding tax liabilities were told that their failure to pay in the past was regarded as an oversight, but if they did not respond in the future, it would be seen as a conscious decision. And, of course, um, the government's even better at dent- than dentists at pulling teeth, you know. It says, ideas being considered using handwritten fonts to personal letters, asking people to complete an honesty code in letters, sending a thank you letter to people who have complied, highlighting key information in bold or strong colours, using lotteries or prize draws to encourage people to pay tax returns early. <laughs> i, I got to say something. These lottos and you could win, etc. I can understand an awful lot of why the elite eventually have contempt for the masses. And I'm sure those amongst you who are really awake understand that too. It's so pavlovingly simple, and yet it works every time. eh? You might get something for nothing. Linking tax evasion to the impact on council services and naming and shaming late payers on a website. Uh, The letter, which also warned that third-party information could be used to provide they were defrauding the exchequer, resulted in a 14% higher response rate and prompted £1 million in voluntary disclosures. Officials said other initiatives, such as sending personalised text messages, urgently paid fines, and including images of untaxed vehicles and demands for payment of duties, had proved initially successful. So with this, all this extra cash, I guess, you can throw it in that big black hole called Europe, uh, where, where they don't tell us where the money goes, and, um, and then just get more taxes, just create new, new types of taxes to... No, that's enough of that. Now, the New York Times, as everyone's heard, I'm sure, published a hit piece against the Constitution of the U.S. And uh, it says, as the U.S. demonizes everyday Americans as possible terrorists. In a move that shocked many Americans, the New York Times has published a hit piece against the U.S. Constitution and its outdated ways. Now, years ago, I think the CFR had a big push on for this very thing to happen because they were the first ones to really, really work hard and hard. In fact, they even said they'd have to, rather than hit, the, hit it head on, as a constitution, they would go around it and build treaties and, and uh, things around the constitution. They'd just ignore it altogether. But they also said, too, that it was updated years ago. And that's the guys who run your country. Every, every top politician is a member of the CFR and, uh, it, and, um, and has been for 100 years, by the way. And uh, it's just the way it is. 
It says that the hit piece comes on the heels of a sitting justice of the Supreme Court recommending mul- multiple other constitutions and human rights charters to Egypt over the very constitution she's asked to protect. Joe Joseph, speaking on an emotionally charged Intel Hub News podcast, outlined this disgusting attack on the very foundation of the country and the ridiculous examples and excuses used to demonize the constitution. And it says uh, in the hit piece, the author actually claims that the U.S. Constitution guarantees relatively few rights. Well, it does now, never mind the Constitution, but the fact is the way of life, uh, the way it's run today, uh, definitely gives you very little rights. And, and even then, you have a lot of cash for a lawyer in the States, an awful, awful lot of cash, if you want to take on anything for rights. And it says there are lots of possible reasons the U.S. Constitution is terse and old, and it guarantees relatively few rights. The comment... The commitment of some members of the Supreme Court to interpreting the Constitution according to its original meaning in the 18th century may send a signal as of little current significance, etc., etc. Uh, back with more after this break. Hi folks, we're back and we're cutting through the matrix. It says here in the hit piece, the author actually claims that the U.S. Constitution guarantees relatively few rights. And then says there are lots of possible reasons. This is the the article itself. The United States Constitution is terse and old, and it guarantees relatively few rights. The commitment of some members of the Supreme Court to interpreting the Constitution according to its original meaning in the 18th century may send a signal that is of little current use to, to, say, a new African nation. It says, and the Constitution's waning influence may be part of a general decline in American power and prestige. And I think you should really say, well, the fact is, when no one in Washington's time would have stopped anybody from going anywhere they wanted in the country. You didn't go through X-ray machines and get, and, and get pulled over and uh, strip searched and all the rest of it with the black-clad goons out there either. And same thing when they were fighting communism. Same thing happened. You can come back from the, uh, the, 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 the military service and cross the country without a darn problem. Not now. They've turned into the very thing they claimed they were fighting. See, Because run by a small clique. It says these absurd statements and type of thinking actually make sense coming from the New York Times, especially when you consider their devout worship of globalization and any war the military-industrial complex wishes to rage. Remember, too, that Carl Quigley, who was the Council on Foreign Relations historian, said that the New York Times was one of their first papers that they put out there. They never let go of it. In fact, the Times across the world, India Times, it's all part of the, this global society that the founders wanted to bring in. Not a happy, harmonious society, but it really a, a eugenically run society run by experts, the ones with the, the pointed heads. Now it says, it says, uh, consider this quote taken from a 1991 Bilderberger meeting in Baden, Germany, from none other, other than kingpin globalist David Rockefeller. Now David Rockefeller, uh, helped, helped, he's been in the CFR forever, he was the president the whole bit, he's a trilateral member too, trilateralist, and also, uh, he, he got the World Council of Churches together to, to blend Christianity into a, a form of, of Judaism, basically, to bring it into the Old Testament rather than the New Testament, which they were very successful at. And then, yeah, of course, too, they start putting out the, 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 the training for all pastors, etc. So they're going to get standardized into the same, the same kind of thing. 
But this is what he said at the Bilderberger meeting in Baden, Germany, 91. He says, we're grateful to the Washington Post, the New York Times, Time Magazine, and other great publications whose directors have attended our meetings, because they're all members, and respected their promises of discretion for almost 40 years. 40 years. That was in the 90s, right? It would have been impossible for us to develop our plan for the world if we had been subjected to the likes of publicity during those years, but the world is now more sophisticated and prepared to march towards a world government. The supranational sovereignty of an intellectual elite, that's themselves, and world bankers, which he is one too, is surely preferable to the national auto-determination practiced in past centuries. That's what he said. And... uh, no one thinks, seems to think much about it. I mean, he's a guy literally uh, working, uh, seen as a traitor, to, to undermine the system and the country itself, open, pretty well openly, and at the head of so many organizations and funding them through their foundation to do so, along with the other foundations. And, of course, they, they are simply the sister organization of the Royal Institute of International Affairs in Britain, that was founded initially with the merger of the Milner Group and the Cecil Rhodes Society to become the Royal Institute of International Affairs with the global agenda always at the front to take over all the world's resources, to run the world in exactly the manner he talks about here, run by bankers and intellectuals, uh, no more democracy and all, and all that kind of stuff. In fact, they even uh, helped set up, I think, the, the, the Club of Rome, one of their think tanks advises governments who said in the 70s in their own book uh, that democracy would not work and there was too many conflicting, conflicting parties to get anything done. And so they just bypassed it through using non-governmental organizations and technocrats, guys who go behind the scenes and get things done. They're not responsible to the public. So meanwhile, the FBI is now demonizing Americans who seek to restore the gold standard as possible terrorists the, Homeland of, uh, of, the Department of Homeland Security is openly promoting and attempting to control globalization, and the entire corporate media is pushing misinformation in their bids to convince the American people to support an illegal war with Iran. But uh, I just matter what standard they put you on. Uh, whatever, you, whatever you, as the people say, is money, is money. And that's as simple as that. But the fact is, it was the same guys running gold and silver as running paper today. It says, if we actually followed the Constitution, none of the above acts of tyranny would be allowed to happen. And this fact is the underlying reason why attacks against the U.S. Constitution have been increasingly occurring throughout the corporate-controlled media. So, you can read the rest of that for yourselves. And uh, I'll actually put the article up uh, that started the, the, this uh, fracas. It got lots of publicity, because I always make sure the launch it with lots of publicity, because uh, all the media is on board with it. And it says, The Declining Influence of the United States Constitution by David S. Law. What a better name than that, eh, for, for uh, you know, political science and school of law. And Myla Verstig, University of Virginia School of Law. And the whole article is here in its abstract, it says. So, uh, yeah, nothing changes, really. They've been pushing this for an awful long time for the global government governance they want to put across the whole planet, which is really here, actually. It's pretty here, pretty well here. Now, quite a few years ago, I read on the air an article where a farmer in England had been sent uh, uh, some massive bill because he was taking subsidies from the government and not, not to plant f- crops. And they claimed he was planting crops. And I'll give you an update on this today because it's happening across the whole 
the world now. Back with more after this. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Because you can handle the truth. Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt. We're back cutting through the matrix and talking about farmers. Farmers really, uh, it's the same old story. When you have a war, you change society completely. Government steps in, people are willing to go on rations if necessary and uh, take up more hardship. And uh, all for the common cause, you see. Oh, common cause, the common good. And government sets up more and more agencies and that's when all the agricultural agencies uh, came out into being in World War II, mainly. And again, they had the, the carrots and the stick and all the rest of it policies all set for farmers after the war. Uh, but they give them sub- tax subsidies or, or breaks, etc. And until literally your main visitor to the farm now is simply one government agency after another, you know. So that's, again, people fall for all the things. Oh, if I join this and, and you know, I'll get breaks on this and that. And yeah, what's, what's, the, what's the cost of it? And it's just farmers who claim more economic union. That's a parliament thing. They think they a better name than the EU, eh? Subsidies than they should or who break common agricultural policy rules are now more likely to be caught by camera in the sky than an ins- inspector, I almost call them an inspector, calling with a clipboard. How did they feel about being watched from above? Then they give you the usual imagined thing and walking the country and then down comes a, a plane, but it's uh, actually a drone. It's just, uh, uh, who is there to spy on here? No military uh, installations, just farmland, it says. Um, and it says they thought we had an additional building without permission, but it was actually a haystack. And it, was, it says uh, Europe's farms cost taxpayers billions of euros in subsidies each year. Now, it's true some of these farms in this EU, it caused a lot of problems at the beginning because there were so many small like plot farmers in, in France especially uh, and other countries who were claiming massive grants. But, uh, but the, the, big, the bigger farms too, they being intergenerational farms and farmers, um, got really hit as well. It says, uh, and the EU agriculture inspectors are turning to technology to improve their patchy record in preventing fraud and waste. Satellites have already been in use for several years and drones are currently undergoing trials. They wonder why the cost of government keeps going up, eh? Scanning a farm with a satellite costs about one third as much as sending an inspector on a field visit. About 115 pounds, it says, or 180 dollars, rather than 310 pounds or 490 dollars, says UK's Rural Payments Agency, which is responsible for disbursing the subsidies in the UK and checking for irregularities. This EU thing is the biggest waste you'd ever imagine. They used to dump, they call them butter mountains and sugar mountains and so on, because now all your foodstuffs were in a common market. And uh, when they want to keep the prices up, so they just dump all the stuff at sea, destroy the stuff. Incredible to keep prices up. It says the RPA follows up only on those claims where there is some doubt about accuracy, and then only at the specified fields for which the doubt exists. The RPA says it saves time, lifts the burden on farmers, and reduces cost to the taxpayer. Satellites can rapidly cover a huge area in detail and quickly return to photograph it again if necessary. 
In 2010, about 70% of the total required controls and farm payments in the EU were done by satellites, which photographed more than 210,000 square kilometres of land and all. But they're not infallible, as Austria does not use them on the grounds that the shadows cast by the very mountainous terrain sometimes make satellite images inaccurate. In Scotland, unlike the rest of the country, it says they've got difficulty getting clear weather. It's always raining there. So it says, there, so the answer to this all is to bring in these drones, you see. And um, it's going to it cost you a lot more to the taxpayer or pay for that too. And it can be used for lots of other things like, like policing and yada, yada, yada. So that's what's, now, it's, now you can't even work in peace and quiet anymore. You're getting spied on these darn drones and so on. And of course, what you know too is the big lobbyists that make these things are lobbying governments to take them. Don't, you know, the biggest corruption is within government itself. They're all on the take. That's the way it is. If they weren't on the take, believe you me, you wouldn't be surrounded, parliaments and, and, and Congress wouldn't be surrounded by streets and streets of lobbyists. It wouldn't be, it wouldn't work obviously if they weren't on the take. That's how the real government is. That's how it really works. Yeah. It's amazing how people don't really understand that thing. They don't go in there and say, oh, please, Mr. So-and-so, Secretary of whatever, uh, could you please take our products? We're trying to promote them and we need the cash. You really think that's how it works? Mm. Now, another article here, too, is, is quite good, actually. You've all heard about the Camden uh, camera, which talks to the residents to get off the streets or face prosecution. I'll put that link up tonight. But there's an even better one up. is the Cotton CT. CCTV, a police officer chased himself after being mistaken for a burglar. He said undercover police officer chased himself around the streets for 20 minutes after a CCTV operator mistook him for a suspect. It says, as the probationary officer from Sussex police searched the area for suspects, the camera operator radioed that he had seen someone acting suspiciously in the area. The junior officer, who has not been named, was monitoring an area hit by a series of burglaries in an unnamed market town in the country's south. As a probationary officer from Sussex Police searched for suspects, the camera operator radio did seen someone acting suspiciously, suspiciously in the area, but he failed to realise it was actually the plainclothes officer he was watching on the screen, according to details leaked to an industry magazine. The operator directed the officer, who was in foot patrol, as he followed the suspect on camera last month, telling his colleague on the ground that he was hot on his heels. He was chasing himself. So he spent 20 minutes chasing himself before a sergeant came into the CCTV control room, recognised the suspect and laughed hysterically at the mistake. Eh? Well, just as well didn't tase him to death. Eh? <laughs> that had been quite the inquiry then, or embarrassment. Now, we're giving our thoughts on everything, uh, years in advance actually. Um, for a while back I've talked about the, the very little that's out there from Arabian perspective on their own cultures uh, and, and so on. But And also um, Very Bad Arabs is a good uh, video to watch because it shows you how Hollywood literally for oh well over 40 years has been demonizing Arabs as always always the same sneaky, suspect, uh, untrustworthy people in all their movies. So many, many movies have, have them in there like that. And, of course, we, that's where you get your ideas from. That's where, literally, you don't get it from history books because nobody reads them anymore. And, uh, and even in the history books, you have to go deeper to get specialists, real, real specialists um, in sight, people who've worked amongst them, especially spies, 
They're the best uh, source of intelligence of all when they write memoirs and so on. And this was from Alastair Crook, who was legislative former British intelligence MI6 agent and advisor to the EU High Representative for Javier Solana on Middle East issues from 1997 to 2003, as well as the Mitchell Commission looking into the causes of the Palestinian Intifada. He'd been involved in negotiating with Hamas and other Islamist movements, including the ending to the Church of the Nativity Siege in Bethlehem in 2002. Currently, Crook heads the Conflicts Forum in Beirut. His recent book is Resistance, the Essence of the Islamist Revolution in June, both Lebanon, in which Hezbollah is contending and Iran head into critical elections. And this is what he says. He spent his life being a spy and causing problems and no doubt wars as well. Most Western analysis of political Islam make the same mistake. They instinctively assume that the conflict with the West has mainly to do with specific foreign policies, particularly of the U.S. with respect to Israel, the Arab world and Iran. And if those changed, all would be well. Very, and very simplistic, in other words. Because I want to say, in fact, my intensive contact over the years with Iranian clerics, Hezbollah and Hamas, suggests that the conflict with the West is much deeper. It's rooted in radically different worldviews about human nature and the good society. And that's what they call it at the top, the good society. They actually call this the good society. Now as we plummet. And the good life. Failing to grasp this reality, the West continually misreads what is going on in the Muslim world. I'd, I'd, I would say, actually, they don't misread it at all, since we know it's assault to demonize it. At root, the West is about individualistic instrument, uh, instrumental rationality and materialism. I'd say it used to be. We're post-materialistic uh, now and post-consumer, right? And we're, we're not individualistic. We're all treated like peasants. The Islamic resistance movements are about a communal and spiritual approach to life. Well, we're all atheistic here now because that's been promoted for a 100 years with Rockefeller and the rest of them. It has been 30 years now since the Iranian Revolution and 50 years since the first Islamist resistance movement, the Muslim Brotherhood, was formed in Egypt. And I think it was British intelligence that formed them in the first place. Yet many in the West remain bemused. Why is there an Islamist resistance at all against what are Muslims in revolt? Westerns, uh, Westerners ask. I wonder what Westerners ask that. They, they never, never ask anything. They take it all from TV. Oh, 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 go and kill them. Even now, more shockingly, there seems to be still no clarity about the Iranian Revolution. Was it nothing more than a populist kick against power and the Shah's heavy-handedness that was hijacked by the Ayatollahs, as many assert? We know, of course, that Iran's never had peace because Britain, the US, and other countries have always been uh, destabilizing it and putting in their own boys till they get kicked out. Such explanations seem blatantly inadequate to account for events that were and still are mobilizing and energizing hundreds of millions of Muslims. In his book Resistance, The Essence of the Islamist Revolution, I argue the revolution is essentially a refusal, a grand refusal to accept an understanding of the self or of the worlds dominated by contemporary secular Western consciousness. That's more to the truth, actually. It says, Islamism is as short, in short, is not irrational. It is no whimsy of divine caprice. It is accessible to reason, recent explanation. And it seeks to evolve an alternative to the ways of the West. Western modernity essentially has stood on two pillars. The first has been described by historians as a great transformation that began in Europe in the 18th century and was based on a moral philosophy that saw human welfare yoked to the efficient operation of markets. In other words, people were put into wage, as wage slaves in the West. Humans pursuing private desires and needs would intersect with others through the market mechanism to maximize not just individual welfare but community 
well-being too. It's just largely the national healthcare system apart. Closely associated, that wouldn't happen by the way in Muslim countries. Closely associated with this was another idea taken up by English Puritans that its roots deep in Anglo-Saxon history. It saw the invisible hand of providence also at work in politics to bring about another ideal outcome. The view held that the jostling and hurly-burly of political contention between the Anglo-Saxon tribes in the earlier society had given rise to spontaneous harmony and political order, all the way down to the slaves, which are actually called serfs. But this political market, English Puritans believed that the Anglo-Saxon institutions representing the epitome of personal freedom and justice had spontaneously emerged. It's just like that. Never mentioned banking or money lending. Such key ideas about politics and economics were transported to the Americas with the Pilgrim Fathers to become the archetype for the U.S. system of government. The concept of the nation-state democracy and human rights all flowed from this Protestant current. Of course, the Great Transformation did not come about either naturally or spontaneously. The creation of a market system required massive state intervention to subordinate other important social, communal, and political objectives to this overriding end, absolutely, to the central banking boys. This brought stresses that took 19th century Europe to the brink of revolution, and by the 1920s left Islam in crisis holding on by its fingernails. In the century leading up to Islam's crisis in the 1920s, the Great Transformation had been exported to the Muslim world, It was a rush by the West to create ethnically unitary nation-states in the former Western provinces of the Ottoman Empire. This is very important, this part, for those who are still awake, because, um, you see, this is a continuation from George Bush Jr. onwards, but he called it revolutionary democracy across the world. Whether they like it or not, they're going to get it. It says here, a powerful nation-state was seen as the only structure with enough instrumental strength to force through the social changes required to enforce market liberalization on Muslim societies. As in Europe earlier, the impact of transformation was truly traumatic. Approximately 5 million European Muslims were driven from their homes between 1821 and 1922 as the West created nation-states in former Ottoman provinces. Now, (laughs) this is interesting. The young Turk determination uh, to emulate Europe's secular liberal market modernization in Turkey came at terrible cost. Now, the young Turks were started up by the Milner Group. They had the young Italians, young Turks, and, and young everything else. That was their color revolutions of then. Do you realize that what we're doing today is the same darn process run by the same people to do the same across the same area, to finish it off? You already read your history on this. One million Armenians died, 250,000 Assyrians perished, and one million Greek Orthodox Anatolians were expelled. Kurdish identity was suppressed, and finally Islam was demonized and suppressed by uh, Kemal Ataturk. It says Islamic institutions were closed and the 1400-year-old caliphate was abolished. Paradoxically, it was the Kemalists and the Turkish transformation, which Westerners so admire, that, that, that all that slaughter, we are, we're taught to admire that that inadvertently by severing the links to the caliphate superstructure that provided stability to the Islamic world for centuries created the conditions in which Islamism at the popular level could transmute and evolve into a revolutionary movement from the bottom up, including from the margins of the Shiite minority. The Young Turks, the Milner Group, which is now the Royal Institute of International Affairs, CFR, set up and financed the color revolution of its day, uh, caused millions and millions of deaths across the Middle East. It says a clear line leading from the secularization of Turkey to the Iranian Revolution more than a half a century later. The league is on about part two as well, which I'll put up tonight at the end. 
of this broadcast. Because if you don't understand this, you're, and again, look at uh, uh, Real Bad Arabs. I'll put that link up again to show you how we're all propagandized into hating, hating, hating. Even when they tell us, oh, hate is bad, it's okay to hate the, the enemies that they give you, you see. And remember, you, you really do get your own view from fiction, more so than little articles. That's where your role of view comes from. But this is from the horse's mouth, Alistair Crook. Just look up the terms for yourself to see what they mean, and you'll see that I'm right. And now the U.S. and this is other article. The U.S. and allies are continuing ways to ensure pressure on Syrian leader Bashar al-Assad after diplomatic efforts that unite the U.N. Security Council to support a political transition were blocked by Russian and Chinese vetoes. We're going to have to take measures outside the United Nations to strengthen and deepen and broaden the international community pressure on Assad, State Department spokeswoman Victoria Nuland said yesterday. So who, who is the international community? I love it when they say America or, or, or that Britain. Britain has decided. The people don't, don't even know themselves what's going on. This game's been played for too long, you understand. We have no say in anything. Secretary of State Hillary Clinton will, will work with allies to create, that's all lies, remember, to create an international support group for Assad's opposition and to tighten sanctions against Syria, Nolan said. Other steps include pushing Syria's trade partners to drop business with the regime and halt weapons shipments in particular, she said. Further action at the UN is also on the table, according to UN diplomats who weren't authorized to comment publicly. Do you want to get run by a global system that won't comment publicly? Do you? What's the point in democracy? What does democracy mean now? So there will be a plan B, Aaron, Aaron David Miller of the Wilson Center, a Washington policy group, another think tank, you see, private, sit in a telephone interview. We should get all these characters and see what organizations, private organizations, the other ones they belong to. Shouldn't we? But of course they won't do that. You should do all that yourself. So anyway, uh, they're still wanting to go and, and bomb the rest of them, just like the young Young Turks, etc., etc. Back with more after this break. Hi, folks. I'm on what we're cutting through the matrix, and this hour flies in, so I'm going to the, the callers now. There's Daniel from the UK hanging on, and Clint as well. So take Daniel first. Hello, Daniel. Uh, yeah, hello, Alan. Um, I just wanted to, if it's all right, read something quickly for people. Um, it's from this um, Global Trends, Strategic Trends document I downloaded from your website. Yeah. Which I think is important that people should uh, should look at. So if it's all right, um, just like to read out a section entitled "Global Economic Collapse." Um, it's from 2007, just as the financial problems were starting. Um, it says globalisation will result in critical interdependencies that will link members of a globalised society that includes a super small, a super small super rich elite and a substantial underclass of slum and subsistence dwellers who will make up 20% of the world population in 2020. A severe pricing shock, possibly caused by an energy spike or a series of harvest failures, could trigger a domino effect involving the collapse of key international markets across a range of sectors. The impacts of this collapse could be transmitted throughout the globalised economy. 
possibly resulting in a breakdown of the international political system as states attempt to respond to domestic crises and the local effects of wider economic collapse. Sophisticated societies that depend on complex transnational networks for the supply of basic human needs, such as food, that cannot be provided indigenously, are likely to face severe infrastructure failure, collapse of public services, and societal conflict. End quote. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's that's pretty scary because I mean, this is coming from um, the MO, for the MOD. And I looked at the bottom... That's of right, that's, I've got the whole thing in my archive section, the whole 90 pages there, yeah. Yeah, yeah the whole lot's there from your website. Ministry of Defence, yeah. In, in, it's, um, this was compiled by, amongst others, the Rand Corporation and Chatham yeah. House, mm-hmm. um, these think tanks. But, I mean, that one paragraph really sums up what is coming down the line. Exactly. The food oh, yeah. And not only that, it's designed, all the chaos is designed to bring in the new order. That's the beauty of it, too, of, of forcing interdependence uh, on everyone across the whole globe. Absolutely, yeah. But it's, I mean, it's, it's literally um, a glance into what is going to happen. That's what's so scary about it, because as it happens, this was yeah. 2007, and everything it says here so far is building up. As it yes, says. and they go on with projections up to the, the year 2040. They even talk about flash, you know, flash mobs uh, in the streets over, over food and things like that. Uh, and well, I mean, yeah. in the 2010 document, it says the state will remain the preeminent actor in international relations and many individual states will be dominated by elite groups that emerge from distinct socio-economic, yes. educational, tribal and ethnic groups. However, the emergence of a global elite, a powerful network of individuals and institutions that sits above the level of individual states and influences the global agenda is also possible. Now, they don't tell you how they reach that conclusion, but really they're just bringing it out in the open. They bring it out, no, absolutely. That we're run, see, we've been run by a feudal system for a long time, run by corporations and think tanks and, and, uh, and uh, inter- international corporations. So they're simply bringing it out into the open. Quigley, again, goes through that back in the 60s in his book Tragedy and Hope and his other one, The Anglo-American Establishment, that this is the way it would come. Your CEOs of corporations uh, would be your new feudal overlords, and that's the way it's brought down today. Government works with nothing but corporations now, and, and even they hire out most of their jobs to them uh, for think tanks and, and different work and so on, roads, everything. Yep. So you're quite right. Yep. But I've got the archives, and it's archive section, cuttingthroughmedics.com, the Ministry of Defence report for Britain, it's also the same one as for NATO, and the American one as well, uh, for 2007-2010, for both of them. So go in there and have a look yourselves. And sorry, Clint, from Ontario, I couldn't get to you. Maybe get try that tomorrow. From Hamish myself from Ontario, Canada, it's good night, me, your God, or your God's go with you.